Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. We have quite a series to jump into tonight. We're starting a brand new series uh, that's going to take us about four weeks, and it's called Relationships and Sexuality. Are you ready for that? Uh, We could have gotten creative with the title. We went for clarity here. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about relationships and sexuality. Um, Our aim, my aim as a leader, as a teacher here, is that we would have really, really good relationships. That we would have great marriages. I I know there's, like, shout out Josh and Lily. A great marriage. They just got engaged yesterday, right? So awesome. We're really excited for you guys. There's a lot of young married or young about-to-be-married couples in this room. I see you guys. I won't, I won't say your names. You don't, you, if you sit up there, you don't want to be called out. I understand. I understand. Um, and, and ultimately, one of my aims is that we would have family at this church for every person, whether they are single or married. That's the aim. So this series is going to begin a conversation and a meditation I use that word very uh, specifically, a meditation, a filling of our mind with the thoughts of God about relationships and sex on a variety of topics. What does it mean that we're designed, that God designed humans? What does that mean for us? We're going to talk about tonight specifically about male and female, two genders, more genders, about singleness and family. We're going to talk about marriage and sex, and we're going to talk about Christians who are attracted to the same sex. We're going to talk about all of that starting tonight and for the next uh, three weeks after this. And from the very get-go, I want to be very clear about my goals for this series. This is the start of a conversation and meditation on human sexuality and relationship. And I need to be clear. The Bible has some very clear black and white answers and truth about relationships and sex that come from the designer. We're going to try to major on those things. But the Bible is not an answer book. You come looking for an answer book, You will not find all of the answers. You will start making up answers where there really aren't answers. You will start majoring on minors. We're not going to do that. What I mean is that God wants us to go on a lifelong journey as we discover how to live in design, how to live in design while living in this broken world. And so this is an invitation to meditate on the design of God. That's what this series is, an invitation to meditate on the design of God. Uh, Also, this isn't a rules series. There will be no rules, okay? There's no like St. Hill's rules about this or about that. My goal in every single message, even beyond this series, every single evening, is that you would be connected to God. You encountering the Father is more important than the information that I'm going to give you tonight, okay? That is my uh, conviction. That's my contention. And so I I want us to allow his word and uh, to lead us into relationship and surrender. That's the hope. That's the hope. I'm actually most interested in two things throughout this entire series, and that's design and hermeneutics. That's the main, these are the main two points. Like, write these down. Design and hermeneutics. That's really what this whole series is about. How were you designed as a human to function best? 
How do you honor God with his God-given design? And what is your hermeneutic? How many of you have heard that word before? Just like a show of hands, a few of you. In other words, what's your relationship to the Bible? How do you relate with the Bible? How do you read the Bible? You know, there's this moment where Jesus is asked this contentious question, and Jesus puts the question back to the Pharisees. He says, well, you know what's written. How do you read it? See, we, we, many of us who grew up in the church, we grew up in the church believing that there's no such thing as interpretation. There's just what the Bible says. The Bible says it, that settles it. There is a very key step that it goes in between the Bible says it and that settles it, and it's how do you interpret it? What, what do you use to discover what's true? Your personal experience? Your friend's experience? Your own, your own issues or the pains of your past? What's your hermeneutic? We all have one, and you're about to discover yours throughout this series. How do you find out what is true in the Bible, and how do you know what to apply to your life and what to not apply to your life? Because we're all doing it. There's all sorts of things that Paul says that none of us do. I don't greet each of you with a holy kiss, and you're grateful for that. But, yeah, just Emily. But, but why not? Why not? Well, is it cultural? Is it not? We're going to get into all of that throughout this next month. So let's begin the journey this evening, turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. That's where we're going to be, Genesis chapter 1. And uh, specifically tonight, I've titled my message, Men, Women, Brothers, Sisters. Men, Women, Brothers, Sisters. And here's my thesis. Together, we image God in a unique way. Our relationships with one another are to be like brothers and sisters because we are family. And what I want to do is I want to start at the beginning, and I want to get a 30,000-foot view of the story that the Bible is telling about men and women, about human nature, from Genesis to Jesus. We're going to go all the way to Jesus, and it's going to get really good, I promise. So let's start here. Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to talk about God's design. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, here's what happens. We pick up the creation narrative, God making the world. In verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind, that's both men and women, in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. Here's the key verse. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, flip over to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to get a little bit more of an up-close account of the creation story about humans, okay? That's what Genesis 2 does. It zooms in and says, here's the specifics of how uh, men and women were created. So, look down at your Bibles. 
uh, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Okay? Skip down to verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Wait a second. Go back to verse 18. Sorry. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, this man, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man." That is why, this is such an amazing passage, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Every single human being across the entire face of the planet needs purpose. Why do you exist? What do you exist for? And and what I want you to see tonight is that if you live without an author, you live without a design. And if you live without design, you will live without purpose. Every human wants an author deep down. See, what is design? When I say that word, what's behind that word? Well, design tells the truth about something the purpose of the tool. For example, a sharp and curved shovel tells the truth about how it was designed to interact with soil. It tells the truth about gravity and about the hardness of the ground and that we need holes, okay? That's why a shovel is designed the way a shovel is. It's telling the truth. Good design always tells the truth. Bad design does not recognize the truth. Likewise, and this, is, and this is why, this is why Ikea furniture just totally stinks, because, because it breaks down. It's not telling the truth. Humans need to sit on things and eat at things for long periods of time, like years, not just months. Okay. So, in the same way that that's how design works, humans are designed, meaning humans tell a truth when they function correctly in relation to the earth and to one another. We're telling a truth. And this corresponds to what God is saying when when he says, what he has made is good. What is he saying? Is he saying that he just enjoys it? Wow, that's really good. That was a good meal. Is that what he's saying? That's a good piece of land. That's a good fish. Ah, it's very enjoyable to look at. Is that what he's saying? Is it a moral statement? And this is good. This is is the, the moral good. Is that what he's saying? I think that this statement of it's very good or what God has made is good is better understood as a design statement. Good in Genesis refers to function. Land is doing what it's supposed to do. 
Water is doing what it's supposed to do. And humans are doing what they're supposed to do. He looked at all that he had made and it was very good. In other words, the design is telling the truth through the way that it's functioning. It's functioning correctly. Now, what we get here is a very general definition of the nature of men and women. What's the truth about men and women, right? And we, and we see that, that, that men uh, and women are made to come together in some sort of union. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh, right? The first marriage moment, uh, mention of marriage in the entire world, there's a, a large narrative in our culture that says marriage was essentially designed to control women and property, Wrong. <laughs> this is the first mention of marriage, okay? But what it's, what's important to see is that there's something that wasn't functioning well before this, and that was in verse 18. Look down at, the, at your Bible. It says, then the Lord God said, it's not good. So there's all this good stuff, but it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable. So God makes woman, right? And here's what's important to see. What is woman? What is woman? She's the same as Adam, but she's opposite of him as well. Uh, verse 18 says, I will make a suitable helper. That, that word, that suitable helper phrase in Hebrew is a compound, it contains two compound words uh, in Hebrew, ezer konegdo. Can you say that with me? Ezer konegdo, okay? And this ezer konegdo will provide a level of companionship that the animals are incapable of. Can we just say amen to that? Okay, and what she's going to do is she's going to take away the not good part of God's creation. Now, ezer, that word in Hebrew, is something that's often used for God. It's his great strength for deliverance. That's what ezer means. It's his great strength for deliverance. And so in a healthy marriage, this is what women bring to the relationship, to men. A, a, a great strength for deliverance. And konegdo, this other compound word for this suitable helper, that's the suitable part of things, is another word that roughly translates the opposite of and corresponding to. So, so this man, it's not good that he's alone. What this man needs is he needs a great strength for deliverance that's opposite of him but corresponds to him. Uh, not to get... You, you know, it, it, kind of in your mind, imagine a man and a woman standing right in front of, they're opposite of each other, but they are corresponding to one another, not to get too graphic in imagery, but there's a biological reality as well. Men and women have corresponding biology, and that's what's being recognized here in the text. We need to, what does he need? Because if you think about the way that this text is kind of worded, is that it's not good for Adam to be alone. So what, so what, what, what comes next? Animals. Well, that's not the kind of company that we were actually thinking for him, okay? And so they don't correspond to him in a way that the woman corresponds to him. Let's just say that. Okay, so then here is woman who is opposite of but corresponding to him. So what you need to see is this. What is woman? She's made from the same stuff as man, She's equal to man. She comes from his side, not from the front of him, not from the back of him, but from his, his side. They are equal partners in imaging God together. But there's sexual difference that matters, right? And marriage, the joining of men and women in union, was God's idea. That's what we learned from the very beginning, from the very beginning. So here's what I want you to see. Men and women 
together image God in a unique way. There's sexual difference and general differences in personality and interests actually give the full picture of what God is like. Together, in, in union, they image God. We learn things about God through women and we learn things about God through men. It's very important that women are women and that men are men. It's incredibly important because that's how we see who God is. Our culture is on this mission to detach gender from sex. As though gender is in your mind. This is, I mean, literally, gender was what you were born with up until like, you know, 20, 30 years ago when it was first introduced. What if gender is in your mind and sex is your biology? What if we separated those two things? Meaning that the design of your body has nothing to do with your role in society. That's what we're saying. The, whole, the, the, the entire kind of idea of transgenderism essentially is saying the design of your body, the truth that your body could tell, it doesn't matter. What do you think you are? You don't have obligations to behave in a specific way in society. People have obligations to recognize whatsoever, whatever is in your mind. The Bible disagrees. Your design means something. Men and women are different. Now, I'm not going to pretend that the Bible puts men and women into specific and exclusive character qualities, like men are always conquering, and women are always kind of demure, and they care about nurturing. No, the Bible doesn't do that. The examples of, there's women who drive pegs through the heads of men in the Bible, okay? So there's some women who conquer, there's some men who care and who are softer, and okay, what I'm saying is this, we gotta celebrate both kinds of characteristics because they image the kind of God that we serve. But we also need to be honest that the Bible does celebrate sexual difference. It does celebrate it. And we will fail to receive the fullness of the Imago Dei in our lives if we don't celebrate sexual difference. Now watch what happens. Turn over in your Bibles to Genesis chapter three. What you have in Genesis 1 is this beautiful picture of gender and marriage correctly functioning. But if you know the story, Genesis 3 comes about and it changes all of that. So Genesis chapter 3, look down at your Bibles. We're going to start in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. If you remember the serpent, this enemy of God, if you, if you, if you want to go back and go back and listen to the spiritual warfare series we did in the fall, this, this wayward cherub is what we kind of came to in the fall uh, goes and tries to deceive the humans, tells, tells them, God does not have your best in mind. You have your best in mind. Okay, so she does. She looks at it. She goes, you know what? If I use my personal faculties that God has given me, it does look good for food. It is pleasing to the eye, and it could be desirable for gaining wisdom. She takes it and eats it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? 
The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So last we heard from them, they were naked and they felt no shame. (laughs) Sounds pretty nice. Uh, it, It was complete innocence. It was bliss. It was Eden. But what we see here is that when the first sin enters the world, what happens? Innocence is lost. We're afraid to be fully seen, afraid to be fully known. And so we hide. And what is the first thing that he says? Gender blame. It's the woman's fault. This is the first time we see blaming of the other gender. Skip down to verse 16. To the woman, he said, this is part of the curse of their sin. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So there's this tension, because of the fall, this tension between gender between men and women. And I don't know if this is for all men and women. It could be, but I think this is primarily in the context of a marriage. I also don't pretend to understand exactly what this means, so I'm not gonna wax and wane about that. I want you to simply see that something went wrong between the sexes. Genesis 3, what does it represent? Something went wrong between gender. And my point here is that the fall in some way has marred gender and the way that men and women relate to one another. After Genesis 3, what do you have? You have a brother who kills his brother. You have the breakdown of family where you have a man who takes multiple spouses. This is not Genesis 1 or Genesis 2. This is east of Eden. And the message is very, very clear. God's original design is not respected or honored, and the result is a return to chaos. God originally took chaos, ordered it. It's good. This design functions. What happens with sin? What happens when, when the genders war? What happens when men conquer multiple women instead of giving themselves, leaving their family to be united with their wife? It's chaos. So here's the question. Here's the question that humans have been wrestling with. Should we then, because of this, should we throw out the original design of Genesis 1 and 2 because of the fall? Should we get rid of it altogether? And this is maybe one of the, as I've been doing so much reading in so many different circles uh, for this series, but this is one of the most important questions I've come to as I've been thinking a lot about this subject. And it's this question. Is Adam and Eve and their marriage an ideal that we should return to or something that we need to move beyond? You need to write that question down. I'm serious. This is going to come up like every message. Is Adam and Eve, are they the identic ideal that we should return to? Are they somehow guiding us in what it means to be in relationship before God? Or are they a good foundation that we should evolve and progress from? See, here's the problem. Four waves of feminism hasn't solved this enmity. And thousands of years since this book was written, we are seeing more people struggle with being okay with the gender they were, they were given by God. So how, we, we, Christians, we need to think well about this. We need to think long and hard about this. This is not a time for us to have flippant catchphrases or for us to just be like, it's just this way, and oh gosh, a bunch of, you know, all those liberals or all those conservatives. No, 
It's time that we engage our mind and our hearts and we really meditate. What does it mean to be male and female? What does God's original design actually mean? What truth is being told through our lives in relationship with brothers and sisters, friendship, and in our marriages? Let's turn to Jesus, Matthew chapter 19. I think he has some guidance for us. Matthew 19 is where we're going to be. Should we get rid of Genesis 1 and 2 because of the fall? There's this fascinating moment where Jesus is asked about divorce. He's approached by some Pharisees, and he's specifically asked about divorce. There was a debate going on in the first century. Can you divorce your wife for any and every reason? Or does it have to be something more serious, like you know, uh, sexual infidelity or something like that? And there were two camps within Judaism. And so they come to Jesus to try to trap him. They're like, we need to get one of these camps on our side against him. So let's try to trap him with this question. Let's see how he answers. And he talks about divorce, but we also get his thoughts around gender and marriage as well. It's fascinating. Okay, so buckle up, get your thinking caps on. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. (laughs) So that tells you a little bit about their moral framework. Verse 11, and this is the key part. We're not gonna talk about divorce. There's so much there. Maybe we'll get to it later in the series, but this is the key for tonight. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only to those whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. What I want you to see is that Jesus roots his entire idea of marriage and sexuality of male and femaleness in Genesis chapter 1. Jesus doesn't think we should throw out design because of Genesis chapter three. He goes back to it and he validates it. But he he doesn't just stop there. He then introduces this whole paradigm that might be a little strange, this paradigm of the eunuch. What the heck is a eunuch? Maybe you're wondering. A eunuch was someone who had their male genitalia removed so that they were not a threat to live within the king's house. Uh, They often were people who served closely to the king um, and with his family. And so in order for them to be trusted, they had to not pose a threat of taking the wife of the king um, or of of being filled with testosterone and causing some kind of uprising or taking control of the kingdom, okay? 
So commonly, eunuchs uh, were men who remained single and without sex for the sake of the king and the kingdom. That's what a eunuch was. So Jesus uses this example that anybody in the first century would have known about. They would have known about eunuchs. But then he adds something that surprised me and likely shocked those who were listening. He says this. He said, some eunuchs were made eunuchs. And they're like, yeah, 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 we know. We know those guys. And he says, but some people were born eunuchs. And they're like, say what? And some have chosen to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. And they're like, what? Now here's the deal. I don't think that Jesus is saying there are people who are removing their genitalia for the sake of the kingdom of God. I don't think he's saying that. But I do think he's saying a couple things. I think that he is saying that there are some who were born with ambiguous sex organs or without sex organs. That's a reality that Jesus acknowledges and that we know more and more about. This is a reality. This happens today. People are born with ambiguous sexual organs. Um, he's also saying, I think, that there are some people who have been forced, and really pay attention to this, they've been forced into living a gender-confused life by the abuse of others around them. They've been made eunuchs either nurtured by a culture that is strayed from original design, they grew up in a cultural milieu that questioned gender, and so they've come to believe that maybe there is, there's a million different genders and they can be anything that they uh, personally want to be, or they've been made eunuchs through the direct influence of bad sexual experiences with others. They've had a bad experience sexually with somebody of the opposite gender, and it's driven them into a place of either desiring somebody of the same sex or not wanting sex at all. Jesus recognized this. And I also think he's saying that there are some people who simply choose to live a single lifestyle that eunuchs traditionally had for the sake of the kingdom of God. So think about this. I mean, Jesus is just so awesome. Think about this. In this passage, Jesus validates some really important original design stuff here. Next slide. He acknowledges divorce is because of hardness of heart. At the root of almost any divorce, you will find there's hardness of heart in either both people or one of the people there. Secondly, he acknowledges that God made a binary. He made them male and female, and he invented original marriage. That was God's idea. But, number three here, there are exceptions. Eunuchs from birth or forced into an inability to express sex the way that God designed it. There are those people as well. And lastly, he validates a single lifestyle as honoring to the kingdom of heaven. So, so, so Jesus says this, look, God made marriage to function between a man and a woman for life. Haven't you read? The creator made them from the beginning this way. And the disciples, they hear that and they go, why even marry them? The bar is way too high. So then Jesus says this, well, if you don't fit into that binary and you can't imagine marriage for life, there are perfectly acceptable other ways of living without sex when your aim for all of your life is the king and the kingdom. 
Now, we're gonna get into marriage in a couple weeks, um, and so I'm not gonna hit much on that here. Uh, but I wanna end with a few thoughts. First, what this shows us is the value of being single the value of being single. Too often, marriage has been elevated as the ultimate prize of the Christian life. I know many people, some of you are in this room, you're in your 20s and you've adopted Christianity as a way to get what you ultimately want, a spouse. You're like, you're like man, if, I, if this is what gets me a spouse, all right. Like, there's a lot of options around here, okay. And I understand that. I think that in many ways, I saw, when, when I first became a Christian, I remember seeing, um, it was, it was, I was going to John Mark Comer's church. I remember seeing him and his, uh, with his wife, Tammy, and I thought, wow, if I obey God, do I get a wife like that? That's amazing. And I did. And so it worked for me, and this could work for you. <laughs> the elevation of marriage as the ultimate goal of the Christian life, that's wrong. That's incorrect. This shouldn't be the case. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He said, I wish that all of you were as I am. He was a single man. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, the other has that. What he's saying is some of you have the gift of being single and some of you have the gift of being married. We skip a few verses, we get to verse 32. He says this, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that, notice this, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Each of you has a gift, whether you're single or married. And what is he saying? Don't judge the one who isn't like you. So if you're married, don't judge the single person. And if you're single, don't judge the married person. Each of you has your own gift. And the gift of being single is this. It's the gift of focus. It's the gift of focus. So don't waste the time you have being single. Some of you, you're not gonna be single for very much longer. Some of you, you're gonna be single for another couple years or another, you're like, God, no. Um, some, of, some of you, you're, you're not gonna be single forever. And so what I wanna say to you is don't waste the time that you have. You have this gift of focus I was just doing a, a premarital counseling yesterday with a, with a couple in the church, and I was saying that single people, they express their devotion to God differently than married people express their devotion to God. Single people, you have this wonderful gift of expressing your devotion to God very clearly. You get to spend time in the scriptures. You get to spend time in prayer. You get to spend time doing church activities. That's why we have an entire young adults group. It's full of single people who have a lot of free time. They have a whole, enough time to have like a, a whole night devoted every week to them. It's incredible. It's like amazing. Don't waste the time. Married people, here's what I want to say to you. You express your devotion to God in an undivided way very differently by how you lay your life down for your spouse, by how you serve your family. That's where your devotion is expressed to God. If you have a definition that devotion to God is only done when you're reading the scriptures or going to a church event, you will get married and you will find yourself torn constantly. No, your devotion is when you're, when you're, when you're changing that poopy diaper, it's devotion to the Lord. 
when you're, when you're doing the dishes, it's devotion to the Lord. Why? We're going to get, I'm gonna, I love them. The marriage message is coming out. Okay, the marriage message is, it's a good one. I'm really excited about it. Uh, but what does Ephesians chapter five says? It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Your submission to one another, what is it? It's devotion to the Lord. It's devotion to the Lord. So, so in the American church, we've ignored this. And we've made marriage the goal of life. It's like all that people look forward to. It, it's, it's become something that you have to do, otherwise you're not truly human. How the heck did we go from a bunch of single celibate men writing and living in the New Testament to this? How have we worshipped family so much and worshipped marriage so much that we have ignored that there is an entirely beautiful way to live which is single and devoted to the Lord? I think the way that we've gotten here is by confusing the covenant of Israel with the covenant of the church. We have confused them. See, in the Old Testament, the first command that's given to a family is what? Have sex. Why? Be fruitful and multiply. Why? Well, we need a Messiah. What is the promise to Abraham? What is it? It's family, it's seed, it's descendants. Why? Because that is how the family of God would progress and grow and eventually produce the Messiah. So the family of God grows at the pace of people getting married and having children. That's the old covenant. But once the Messiah comes, what happens? Things change. We're brought into the family of God, not through uh, sexual copulation, through actual family, men and women getting married and having children. We are brought into the family of God by the Spirit of God. That's why Paul addresses every one of his letters calling single people and married people brothers and sisters. We're children of God. God doesn't undo marriage in the new covenant. Jesus affirms marriage right here, but something has changed. The family of God is no longer an ethnic people group, but those who have faith like Abraham to live and to obey God. People who trust Jesus to save them and sustain them. That's how the family of God grows. And this is what makes us family. We're Abraham's children because we're those who have faith like Abraham. So I want you to think, you're like, okay, that sounds all very nice. No, no, no. It's, it's revolutionary. What does this do for single people? What does this do for celibate people in the church? What it does is it gives them just as much family as anyone else has who's married. In the early church, one of the critiques of the church was that it's for slaves and women. Not that Jesus stuff, it's for slaves and women. Why? Why was it for slaves and women? They were the two, if, if women were raped or if women had sex outside of their marriage, they were completely kicked to the curb and ostracized. The church was the only possibility of family for them. They couldn't get family anywhere else. No Ro respecting Roman male was touching that woman with a 10-foot pole. And so the church came in and said, no, all your sins can be forgiven, washed by the blood, and you will have just as much family as when you were married to that man. It's so powerful. So as Christians, we need to make sure that we are actually being family to each other. When we say we're, uh, the church is a family, uh, that, that, we have to realize the family is no longer biological, but it's by the Spirit of God. If there's someone in your life who you know who doesn't marry, they should still have the benefits of family in relationship to you. 
I put this in a slide, so apparently I felt like this was very important. Let's read this. Uh, we were designed for family, and this is the point. The kingdom makes it possible for people who will be celibate for a life or for a season to have just as much family as the married person. Yeah, that's good. That was good. I'm glad I put that in there. Now, this is going to mean a few things for St. Hill's culture. This means something for our culture. Um, the first thing that it means is that we simply apply the culture of honor to both men and women, married and single. We honor across the board. Um, we honor women for being women and men for being men. Uh, the attributes of nurturing are celebrated here. And the attributes of conquering and protecting are also celebrated here where we see them. We also don't do affirmative action here. We honor people with God's honor for them. We do not honor people because they may or may not belong to a class that has been elevated in our culture. That's wrong. That's sexist. That's racist. We honor people because God has honored every person. They're made in his image. That's why we honor people. The second thing that this means for St. Hill's culture is that we will not elevate marriage as the end all. Marriage is a good thing. It's a gift from God. I hope that many of you get married. But single people are honored and looked to for the gift that they carry. They're equally respected. We want to hear from them. You don't have to get married here in order to get some kind of legitimacy and leadership or in serving and this or that. No, no, no. The entire New Testament, including Jesus, they were single men, okay? And then lastly, I, I really want to say this, and I want you to hear me. We love and we listen to those who are having difficulty in reconciling their feelings of gender with their biology. I just feel... If, if this is you tonight, if you're here and you are having difficulty and you've had it for your whole life of reconciling how you feel or how you think with the physical body that you've been given, this, this, this message is almost not for you. This message is for all the Christians who have judged you, okay? That's what I'm trying to like sort things out here. Um, what I think Jesus would do is he would grab you by the face and he would bring you in close and he just would say, commune with me. You, he, said, he would say, the culture is, is moving at 100 miles per hour and wants you to make a decision, wants you to make many decisions about your gender, about your sex. The church has had one message, and it's, it's left you conflicted. And, and I just want to ask you this. Can you rest with me? Can you rest with me? To end, the real takeaway that I want you to have is that our lives are all about Jesus. Our lives are all about Jesus. I have a very simple resolve that's guiding this whole message and really guiding this whole series. So pay attention and listen carefully. If Jesus is life, remember Jesus comes and he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If he is life, then whatever Jesus had, I need to fully live. And whatever he didn't have, I don't need to fully live. If Jesus is life, then whatever he had, I need that in order to fully be alive. And whatever he didn't have, I'm gonna trust him that I don't need in order to fully be alive. This whole series is about how do you really live? What's the good life? Our culture is preaching that, that, that someone, how somebody really lives, how they really enjoy life is by living according to their mind and felt reality more than their physicality. That real life is found in my truth. This is the complete relativism of truth and rejection of any absolute or any design and people are aching for an author as a result. So you have a decision to make. 
Where will you find life? Are you your own designer? Or has that mantle become burdensome? Is it heavy? Are you the one who knows what's best for you like Eve knew what was best for her? Where will you really get the truth about human flourishing? I want to leave you with the words of Jesus. Here's what he said. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever wants to be the designer, you will lose your life. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. The most effective and full life we can live is one of surrender and closeness to the Father because that's how Jesus lived. That's how he lived. So often, might I I propose, whatever you don't want to surrender to God, whatever you don't want to, you know, we have all of these, this has to happen in my life. And those has to happens, those are the things that we have to give to him. Uh, And we often don't want to give those things to him because we believe that our life is found in those, this has to happen. So whether it's your sexual orientation or your gender, whether it's your job or it's a girlfriend or a boyfriend or some idea about the future, what surrender does is it puts that, that gift in its right priority in your life so that you can be free, so that you can really enjoy it. You were designed to surrender to Jesus. You were designed to need him. You were designed to give everything for the kingdom, whether you remain celibate and single for your life or whether you marry. That's where the real life is found. I want to pray for you. Let's let's stand up. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.